I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders Podcast. I'm the host of the show. My name is Brady Huggett. Welcome aboard. Um, I, well, I want to say one thing. You know where I am? I'm in the studio in our New York office. We're not, the office is not open officially yet. We are still in orange status, which means they encourage us to stay at home. But I am in the office to access the studio. I was able to do that and come in. So um, yeah, it feels good. It's easier, easier than the closet for sure. But I, uh, before we start the show, I want to talk about something else. We are getting close to launching a new standalone podcast series. Not a new show, but a one-off series. It's called Hope Lies in Dreams. It is about Antisense, the history of Antisense. It is about Stan Crook. It is about the company he founded called Isis. It is about the disease spinal muscular atrophy. And uh, I'm, I've been working on this for two years. It seems like the entire pandemic was spent with me sitting at a table in our apartment, looking out at the quiet streets of New York and writing this thing. And we're getting close to launching. We're finishing the website. We're finishing the art and the music. Uh, I hope you'll listen to it. I will put a trailer into this feed, and I will probably also just put the first chapter into this feed when it's ready. But that's coming. That's coming. Hope lies in dreams. Now... Back to First Rounders. The guest today is Nancy Simonian. She is the CEO of Cirrus Pharmaceuticals, and she's also um, spent time with Millennium and Biogen, uh, earlier stops along her biotech path. We, we talked about that. We talked about the drugs that she worked on, these great drugs, Avonex, Velcade. I mean, Avonex was a groundbreaking drug when it was approved. Um, she was part of that. And we talked about what her hopes are for Ciros, now that she's the CEO there and has been for, for many years. Um, we talked about her family. Her mother was a nurse. Her father was a surgeon, and they met in the hospital. Also, her father's family came to America um, fleeing the Armenian genocide of uh, that happened around World War I. We talked about that, too. All that and more, that should do it. Here it is, your first Rounders podcast with Nancy Simonian. Listen up. This is life now. This is how, uh, this I know. how life operates. Um, just check. I've got both lines coming in here. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I was thinking we've met before. Yeah. Yeah, we have. Um, way back, I think when I started the company, if I remember right, Brady. At J.P. Morgan. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I remember we were, um, Eric was going to maybe write a paper for us. And we talked about it for a while, but we never really, anyway, nice, nice to talk to you again. Yeah, same. So I was looking at uh, your education and your professional career have been on the East Coast almost exclusively, right? But I, I don't think that you were born on the East Coast. Yeah, exactly. I grew up in the Chicago area, Illinois. How did that happen? Does your family go, go back there a ways? Yeah, um, my uh, parents grew up in this town called Waukegan, Illinois, halfway between Chicago and Milwaukee. Um, and um, it's sort of a blue collar kind of working class town. That's where I grew up. Yeah. What, do, what did your parents do? My father was a doctor and my mom was a nurse. And uh, my father uh, was Armenian. His parents immigrated from Armenia and uh, there was a lot of steel mills in the Waukegan area, and they all came to work in the factories there. And uh, my father grew up very poor. They were on welfare. He got scholarships and ultimately kind of made it to um, becoming a doctor, became a physician and a surgeon. And then my mom, Irish Catholic, uh, grew up in Waukegan, and she became a nurse. And so my parents met through my father being a doctor and my mom being a nurse. <laughs> so your your dad's family moved to Waukegan for the steel mills. Yes. What era are we talking about here? Or how, or how did your dad's family come here, I guess? Yeah, well, you know, the whole genocide that was, you know, happened in Armenia. Uh, I think yeah. his parents immigrated in the, I want to say like 1912, 1913. My father was born in 1917. So he was born here, but he was very young and they were, you know, as he just had immigrated. And uh, yeah, just, you know, uh, like I said, grew up you know, in a very, uh, you know, poor, you know, his father died when he was young. Um, oh, we did. Scrapped, you know, scraped his way by to try to, um, to get an education and like got this actually scholarship, um, the Evans scholars, they gave uh, scholarships to golf caddies. And so my father was a caddy and that's basically how he made it through college and medical school was through these scholarships. That is amazing. So yeah. this right. So the Armenian genocide was what I think World War, around World War One. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. His parents flee to come to the U.S. He's born here. Yes. His dad works in the mills. Yes. Did he die just of? I don't know. You know, I don't. I'm not sure. I ever know. But he died when my father was quite young, um, and that that kind of set the family up. Where you know there was the mom with the kids, but you know. No other income coming in. No yeah. other income. Yeah. His his brothers and sisters, I think, saw my father's potential. And they really helped also support him to get him through school too. So it was kind of like the whole system was, uh, and you know, I, I, I just look back and think how fortunate he was to have so many people supporting him to make it through, but how difficult it was. And yeah, yeah. How, was he, how, was, yeah. Was he the oldest? He was, I think the second oldest. But for some reason, the family said, you're kind of the one that's going to lift us out if we can get you to school and beyond. Yes, exactly. That's amazing. That's amazing. Okay, so he he gets the scholarship. I love this caddy scholarship. Um, he <laughs> yeah, gets the caddy scholarship and goes to. He did he knew he wanted to be a doctor? I he was like a very intellectual person, and I think at the time, like if you were really intellectual and did well at school, um, you know, you, a lot of you, you kind of drove yourself towards medicine. At least I think my sense is that. I mean, obviously, he had nobody in his family that was in the medical field. And, but I think he just found it really interesting and, you know, um, and that he was good at it and, um, you know, saw real opportunities. And he's always said to me, like, he thought medicine was the greatest profession because, 
it's so intellectually interesting. And at the same time, you're helping people. Yeah. And I think that kind of what sort of drove him. And you know, he went, so he went to um, Northwestern undergrad and then he went to Northwestern medical school and he became a surgeon. Um, he worked in Cook County, you know, hospital, you know, back in the day, it's sort of inner city of Chicago and, uh, and uh, you know, you know, basically became a surgeon. And then he moved back to Waukegan where he grew up. He was actually the first surgeon um, in Waukegan. Um, and, you know, back in the days, surgeons then did everything, you know, now everybody specializes, but, you know, he opened up his own solo practice and set up shop. And, uh, and uh, it wasn't until he was in his forties that he even thought about getting married. I think his whole life was just about like, I just got to make it like, and <laughs> make my career. And, I mean, did he talk about how uh, how difficult that was, like the, the pressure of, okay, now not only do I have to get through medical school, which is brutal and grueling, but I have to sort of do this to help my family. My father's died. I'm the sole breadwinner, kind of. Was it like that? Yeah, I think it was. I think he felt a lot of responsibility for his family, and they had helped him, and he wanted to be able to help them. And, you know, and he, I think he was, you know, so driven um, and just um, – and he, but he, uh, to – to to succeed so that he could kind of make good and right. make a good living and be able to help others. Yeah. yeah. So he comes back to Waukegan. He's already done his time in the city, the big city, as a surgeon. Sets up a practice there, and that's where he meets your mother. Yeah. So um, he was you know, a surgeon. So he, my mom was a uh, a nurse, but she was a scrub nurse in the operating room. Oh. So so <laughs> so they met in the operating room. Um, my mom was 16 years, his junior. So I was kidding because he, he, he was literally in his forties, but had never really, you know, he'd never married or barely yeah. probably dated. And, um, and, uh, yeah, that's where they met. And then my mom ended up basically running his, um, his practice, you know, like in the office, she was his office manager, um, for my father's surgical practice. And would she run back and scrub up to help him assist in the surgeries too? Yeah. No, she stopped doing that. <laughs> she stopped doing that, but there were four of us in the family, four kids. Um, I was the second oldest and my father would bring us to the operating room like every weekend. I remember like having the scrub top on, but it went down past my knees with the gauze as my belt and he would sit, you know, we would watch him operate. Um, so it was, wow. you know, back, back then you could do that. We'd never be able to do that today. And he, I think he, again, he thought that he would wanted all his kids to think about going into medicine, but it turned out I was the only one out of the four of us that um, did. Did. Yeah. Yeah. So it's in the room, in the emergency, or I'm sorry, in the surgery room. Yeah. He'd bring his kids in. Oh, that's, that's yeah. incredible. Like, what yeah. were you seeing? Open heart? No. Well, I mean, he did a lot of, um, he didn't do a lot of open heart um, as sort of a solo practitioner, but a lot of, you know, um, intestinal stuff or, you know, oh, wow. tumor removal. And so, yeah, and I did, you know, held the retractors in the, in the operating room for him. <laughs> How old are you? I started probably at age five or six. I started going to the operating room with him. So, I mean, sometimes I ask people, like, how did you get into medicine? It seems very clear how you got into medicine. <laughs> yes. I mean, both yes. sides of your family, your mother too. Yes, definitely. I, it, we grew up in a family where, you know, uh, going to the hospital, you know, operating on people, helping people. You know, I, I worked actually a lot of my summers and after school, I'd work in my father's practice. So I would you know, like take, be the intake person when the patient's came to see my father, whether before surgery or after surgery. And I did all the filing. So it was definitely kind of part of um, our life is, was medicine. Yeah. The, so the, like the family business is this surgery. 
your family yeah. is the surgeon for the town. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Wow. And you yeah. said your mother was Irish, Irish Catholic. Yes. So this makes you half Armenian, half Irish Catholic. It's a good mix. Yeah. It's American mix, right? It's a good <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. All right. So then you're in high school and you're thinking I'm already, I'm assuming you're thinking about going into medicine. I was, you know, you have to imagine, you know, my father and I was the second oldest, as I said, but I was also somebody that, you know, wanted to kind of please your parents. I think at some level, everybody wants it. And my father, you know, it was like medicine was so important that he, he, like I said, he wanted all us to, all of us to go into medicine, but I, um, I really like biology. And so I kind of always thought that, well, that's what I'm going to do. And, um, went to college, not as a pre-med, but no one was really sort of pre-med when I went to school, but, you know, but was thinking about, you know, majoring in biology, but I was also interested in a lot of different things. I, you know, for a while I was really into documentary filmmaking. I thought that's what mm-hmm. I wanted to do or political science. I, I distinctly remember calling my parents and telling them like, I took this course and I love this other thing. And my father was like, you know, you got to think about medicine. Like, you know, it's like, why would you do this other thing? And so I was always, despite like having these other interests, always kind of being redirected back. And not that I didn't like biology and, and all that stuff. It's just that I had a lot of interests, but yeah, he was very much like, you know, it, like I said, it's like such a great profession um, you know, that you really should be doing that. And so yeah. I, I, I think I probably without his continued redirection, who knows what I would have ended up doing, but, um, but yeah, I, I continued on that path. The, the, um, what had you thinking about documentary filmmaking? Did you see some film that reset your brain? I, um, I just, I, I think I just always liked documentary films and, and actually, when I was in medical school, I worked um, with this documentary filmmaker, Fred Weisman, who's one of the very famous documentary filmmakers. And I worked with him on a film, actually, in an intensive care unit. And it was sort of like a fly on the wall. That was his style where, you know, we would just be filming, you know, all these conversations between the physicians and people in the ICU about sort of death and dying. Mm. And uh, I just... Uh, so I've always just had lots of varied interests and that was one of them. Um, yeah. And, yeah. uh, got a little taste of it, but obviously didn't go into that as a professional. No, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> the, just out of curiosity, the other three children, your siblings, what did they go into? So they all went into kind of business related stuff. My older brother is an investment banker. My younger brother is sort of in the finance world and my sister is in the marketing world. Yeah. Okay. And so right. none of us, uh, none of them, it was just me that, uh, and maybe who knows, maybe I was just one that was, you know, I was my father's daughter and I right. was going to follow in my father's footsteps. Right. So, right. Yeah. So, okay. So you go to Princeton for your biology degree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you finished that, did you go right into medical school? I did. Oh, you did. Okay. And where did you, where yeah. did you go? I went to university of Pennsylvania. Yeah. yeah. Was there, was there a reason for that specific school? No, I just, um, I, I really liked the, uh, the medical school, um, the sort of faculty, the program. So it was really just, you know, you look at a lot of different places and that one really resonated with me. Yeah. Okay. Tell me about medical school. What were you learning there? I mean, yeah. because the th- interesting thing about your career is you're a physician. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, in medical school, probably the first 
year, you know, take all these different types of, you know, intro courses. And I fell in love with neuroscience. Um, and I, I guess I felt like it was the most interesting to me was how the brain worked. I just thought it so fascinating. It was just at the time, you know, this is back in the 80s, that we were for the first time starting to really understand how the brain works. And, the, um, and I just thought it was so interesting. So I just based purely on my scientific interest in the brain and how it worked, I thought, well, I'm going to become a neurologist because, hmm. you know, I, I'd rather be thinking about, in my mind, I thought I'd rather be thinking about the brain than about the gut or the kidney because I just found it more interesting. So I, a lot of my decisions then, and maybe it will foreshadow, you know, what we'll talk about later is kind of like, what did I find really interesting? And uh, though I didn't really understand what it meant to be a neurologist, you know, like I just thought it seemed like an interesting thing to, to think about. To study the so, brain. To study the brain. And uh, so, yeah, so then I, after medical school, I went into a internship and then residency in neurology based on that. But I will say during medical school, you know, my father is a surgeon. And I did sort of think about, well, you know, I should try to be a surgeon because I thought that would be cool. And I remember just being in the operating room, holding the retractors for hours and thinking like, I just can't do this. Like I, and so I think it was, a, a, I want to say a little bit of a disappointment to him because in some ways, neurology at that time was the antithesis of surgery because a surgeon, there's a problem and you go in and you operate and you fix it. Right. A, a neurologist back in those days was diagnose a problem, but you had nothing to do to fix the problem by and large. Maybe there was yeah. some drug for epilepsy. And then you basically just, you, the big intellectual thing was diagnosing the problem. And then you basically would just tell people you had nothing to do for them. Yeah. And so I, I think for him, so I, I, I kind of did the, almost the absolute opposite of what he did or what, what it was like to be a surgeon, which was to fix. I was a, uh, and, you know, back then there weren't MRI scans and stuff. So like a lot of the diagnosis for a neurologist was really about like examination and putting to together a puzzle to figure out where the lesion was. And, uh, so that, and so I thought that was interesting until I started to actually start to treat patients and we'll come to that, but you have a question. So, yeah, yeah I just, I, so I hadn't considered that. So what your father was doing, someone else had done the diagnosis generally. Uh, yes. It's it's a broken arm. Uh, we think there's a peptic ulcer. I don't know. There's been a, what, and then they, they would come to him and he would fix it. He would go in and do it. And you're doing the exact opposite or you were. Yeah. You had to do the diagnosis. And then sadly, there was really often nothing to do. Uh, yeah, that's complete uh, absolutely. opposite. Absolutely. No, it's sort of like, you know, you had a stroke. Well, you put them on an app. Yeah, there was nothing we could really do for that or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. MS, there were steroids. That was about it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, just, I, I my whole early residency was just seeing like all these people that had these interesting neurologic disorders, which I could do nothing for. And, and that actually, in some ways, was sort of the starting of the seeds of my turning point uh, to think about, like, doing something where I actually thought I could actually really make an impact. Right. Um, yeah. Right. So you, you spent, I mean, how many years did you see patients like that? So I, you know, I did an internship and then a, a residency in um, neurology. That's three years. Then I did a fellowship for two years. And my fellowship was in neurodegenerative disorders. So I focused primarily on Alzheimer's disease and um, 
primarily Alzheimer's disease where I, you know, saw people in the clinic and then I was in the lab. So I was doing experiments to try to understand why do neurons degenerate. And then I was also sort of teaching and then I became an assistant professor. So I was really on the, on the track to become like a professor in academic medicine to do research and see patients and teach students. And that was kind of the only thing I knew about, or uh, I didn't know about any other path forward other than that. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And this is in, this is at Harvard and Mass Gen, right? Yes, exactly. Sort of, yeah. You did your residency there. Yes. Did my residency there, my fellowship there, and then I was an assistant professor. Okay. Kind of- so you're, you're teaching, you're teaching while you're doing that too. Did you enjoy that? I did. I love teaching. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you're seeing patients, you're doing research. Are you publishing? At this yeah, point? publishing. Yeah. Yep, yep. Basic research on, you know, why you know apoptosis and neuronal cells, and yeah. So I was definitely doing research and publishing and presenting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. At this point, I'm assuming you're, you know, you've been doing this. You've been diagnosing patients and realizing that that is useful, but it's not quite maybe what you thought of when you thought about medicine. Mm-hmm. And so, did you start to think about what else is there for me? You know, I I didn't until there was an opportunity um, in that um, I didn't really know anything about, you know, biotechnology or for, you know, pharmaceutical business. And like I said, in neurology, there's so few drugs, nobody, you know, there's very few clinical trials, people weren't doing that. And I got a call one day, this was probably in 1994. So there's like I said, a couple of years into being an assistant professor and kind of out of the blue, uh, the people at Biogen were looking for a neurologist and they wanted to see what I was interested in talking to them. And I, I didn't know who Biogen was. I didn't know anything about biotechnology. And, and I thought to myself, you know, why don't I just go ahead and just talk to them? I am like, well, maybe I'll learn something. And um, it turned out that Biogen, you know, it had been around for 20 years, you know, on the recombinant DNA technology wasn't at that point at all a neurology company. Right. Um, they, I would say, um, I want to say stumbled a little bit into in this uh, into neurology in that they were developing interferon beta for um, hepatitis. That was their, you know, one of their lead programs. And there was an investigator initiated study being done in multiple sclerosis by this guy in Buffalo, Larry Jacobs, who they didn't think was going to work. So it wasn't at all a priority at the company. It was and it turned out that the phase three trial worked. And all of a sudden, they they had the opportunity to launch their first commercial product, but they, there were no neurologists at the company because it wasn't a neurology company. So here I get the call and I you know, went to the company and talked to people and I saw the data. I mean, so this is data that um, for interferon beta that showed it could slow disability progression for patients with MS. And there had been no therapeutic yeah. advances in MS, just there were steroids. That's all we had. Yeah. And I thought, oh my gosh, like this is something that can do something for patients that, you know, I didn't have any opportunity in practice to do. And I, I also realized that it was an opportunity to potentially help people in a much different way than I had been, was able to do. And the other thing Um, You know, and then, and it's the same way now is there was like an amazing group of people that were, you know, really sort of scientifically and medically sort of oriented towards using that to kind of 
figure out a way to help patients in a different way than I thought. You mean and at Biogen? You're talking at Biogen. About yeah, yeah, I'm just talking about like the industry, but back then, yeah. you know, this discussion. And I remember I went to, I, I decided I actually I should I should do this. Um, and I remember going to my chairman of my department and telling her I was going to do this. And I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, "You are going to ruin your career. Yeah, you had all this promise, and you know, and you're ruining it. You're and already assistant my- professor." Yeah. I mean, you're at this great, you're at Harvard, you're at this great hospital. Look at, you're publishing, look at the career, you're, you're on this path and you're going to walk away from it like that. Exactly. That was what yeah. she said to me. And then of course that I told my father and he was like, what, like, what? Yeah. I, you know, he was in disbelief and was like completely against it. And well, how did you, so this- how did you defend that decision to him? What did you say? I, you know, I just, I, I, I said, I, this is what I want to do. I, and it was, and it was probably the, one of the hardest decisions I've ever made when you have your father yeah, who's tell, and then you have your mentor, you know, at your, you know, your, your current boss, both telling you this is the wrong thing to do. And, but I've always sort of, I walked away with two lessons from that. One is that you should follow your instincts and your own gut about what you think the right thing is for you. Mm-hmm. Because I think they were both telling me, you should do what I do. And if you don't do what I do, you're not doing the right thing. Yeah. And I think, yeah. I, I think, and, and, you know, I, to this day, whenever anybody asks me what I think that they should do or advice, I first start as like, tell me what's important to you. Like, te- like, what are your values? Because I think when I thought about what my values were and what was important to me, like I wanted to help patients. I wanted to use my medical and scientific, you know, understanding to help patients. Um, But I also had a lot of curiosity about things sort of broader than just, you know, what I did to see patients. I was really interested in like, how do you actually, you know, create therapies and how do you think about all the different aspects of doing that? So I, I found it to be very interesting um, and something that I felt that I could actually learn a lot from and grow a lot from personally to kind of expand my oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. world to understand something beyond kind of what the traditional medicine. So for me, that, that aspect of growth and learning about a broad set of things has always sort of been my, the thing that has motivated me and I think was why I didn't want to spend... 20 or 30 years diagnosing problems that I couldn't fix. Like I wanted to, and I wanted to apply my background in a different way that I thought, of course, at that point, I didn't know for sure what it was going to turn out like, but it was worth taking the risk. Um, And and I do remember this image of feeling like I was, um, I felt like I was jumping off a cliff. I think that was the best way. It's like, I'm jumping off a cliff, but like, I'm going to do it. And like, it's just have to throw yourself in and. Yeah. I mean, that's scary. But that's exciting too, right? I mean, it's. Yeah. I have a question about Biogen, though. This is we're talking about what becomes um, Avanex, right? Yes. Right. So that that had already hit in phase three when they began to look for neurologists to hire. I thought you were hired maybe yeah. to oversee the trials that and then run the, the phase three. No, the there were no neurologists there because I said it, it. The lead indication was in hepatitis, so they right. had, you know, uh, medical people in there that were developing the drug and and hepatitis and. Um, 
and it, and they didn't think that this NIH study was going to be positive. Like I said, it literally was at the the bottom of the list. Like nobody even talked about the trial, I and see. it was a complete surprise that this um, investigator initiated study, you know, NIH sponsored trial, turned out to be positive. And so I see. So NIH was running that phase three. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, filing the BLA, they started. To, they that's when I got hired, right around the timing of the BLA filing. And I have another question. Like, how did they find you? Were they calling all kinds of neurologists or they just cold called you? I think um, they had called somebody else who wasn't interested. And then they thought that they, I don't know how many people they called. Who knows? I, I don't really know the how many people they looked at it. No, again, I was coming in at like the associate director level, I think, when uh -huh. I joined. I mean, I was coming yeah. in, but as the single, the only neurologist there. Um, wow. Which was kind of, it was just really exciting because, like in my first job in industry was almost like a dream because the BLA had just been filed. We were preparing for an advisory committee meeting. We were doing label negotiations. We were working on additional life cycle management for, and like I got thrown right in almost at the end game. <laughs> and I saw, I learned so much about the importance of all these other things that it takes to actually make successful drugs. Yeah. Like, Successful drugs don't just sell themselves. You actually have to think about how you're going to communicate and market and um, set up medical affairs and the label's really important. And, you know, the, the importance of like your trials lead to what your label and your label is ultimately what you promote on. All of that stuff I got thrown right into the middle of and um, just feel like that was a really special opportunity because, you know, unfortunately, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, you can go a lot of people can go through their careers in biotech and pharma and never launch a drug. Yeah. And here I was, that was the first thing I did. And yeah, I think that and what a drug. Exactly. What a drug. I mean, this this is a early, early ish biotech product that is is life altering. Absolutely. In fact, I just ran into uh, I was skiing a couple of years ago and I ran into a woman in the in the line and somehow we got talking and she had been on Avonex for like 20 years and she had it changed her life and she was still skiing. And like, I just, moments like that, I just think back as like, boy, this has profoundly affected people's lives in so many different ways. And, and you just think about that single drug. And obviously at the, at the time, beta serin had also been, there was another interferon beta yeah. that had been approved, but all of those sort of started like launching all this effort into coming up with even better therapies for MS. And now think about all the things that we have today to treat that disease. Yeah. And just how, you know, a patient diagnosed in 94 compared to today and all the opportunities they have um, to increase their quality of life and slow their progression, I think just was seeded by all of that early, that early success in getting those first drugs on the market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So what did, what did you do, actually, at Biogen then? Once you were hired and you helped, helped the launch happen, and then you worked on Tasabri, I assume. Yeah, so um, I went there. I, uh, you know, worked on. We launched the drug, uh, worked on the next set of trials, and then the person that I hired me in left, and then I ended up sort of taking on more responsibility. Um, sort of started to develop medical affairs. I started to run all the stuff that we were doing in the neurology. We licensed in um, Tysabri, mm-hmm. um, and uh, was there at the time that we opened up the phase two envelope. Um, on Tysabri, um, and that was spectacular. I mean, that completely shut down the inflammation in the brain. And then we helped to sort of set up the phase three trial. Um, so, yeah, it was, you know, it was an amazing period of time. I was there for uh, six years and, um, yeah, just sort of continued to kind of grow and develop with greater sort of leadership and managerial responsibilities overseeing you know, all of the neurology development and, and sort of the nascent, they were at that time doing some oncology development and I was overseeing yeah. that as well. So, how, you know, this, as you said, it's kind of like a dream job to stumble into. Someone calls you and you're like, wow, it's Biogen and they're having these great drugs on the market. Why did, why did you leave? Yeah, so it's, uh, so, it, you know, six years later, I was, I was looking to kind of continue to grow. Uh-huh. And this may be like a common theme a little bit in my career, but I feel like, like when I get to a point where I feel like I'm like not learn, not on a steep learning curve, it becomes less interesting to me. And like, I felt like I could keep doing what I'm doing and I was happy. And I actually wasn't looking for any other opportunity, but it just was this felt a little bit like, uh, I could do more. And I remember going to my boss at the time and saying, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'd love to take on some more responsibility and, and there just never was things that materialized from that. Huh. And so, but, you know, that, but that didn't, wasn't making me want to look or anything, but sort of what happened was that the person that, the first person that hired me into Biogen had gone to Millennium to kind of head up the medical group there. And Millennium had just acquired um, Leukocyte, uh, a company that actually had a, a, a development portfolio. And prior to that, Millennium had been primarily a discovery stage. So this was the first time that they were actually going to be developing drugs. And they were looking for somebody to basically lead the development, the the first person to lead development, you know, clinical development there. And um, Irving Fox, he was the one that was at Biogen and then went to Millennium. He called me up and said, you know, Millennium just acquired this company. They have a pipeline like they're looking for someone to lead. I think you should put your head in the ring. And I said, well, Irving, what are they looking for? He said, well, they're looking for somebody with, you know, 15 years of experience has launched multiple, like all this stuff. Yeah. And I said, like, 
I don't have those qualifications. I've only been doing this for six years. And, you know, I was, I was like, and he said, you know what? I just think you're the right person. Just trust me. Put your, throw your head in the ring. I mean, you have <laughs> to do I, it when he says that. Uh, exactly. And, uh, you know, I went in not thinking I'm qualified. Um, and I ended up getting the job. And I think that's just another lesson for me, which I think is, you know, like sometimes go for things like, uh, and I, I'm really glad that I, I'm really glad that I did. I'm really glad that he thought that I was the right person and pushed me to do it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm sure he wasn't fully in control of hiring, but when he calls and says, I work here, I think you're the person for the job. You had to know you're going to be taken seriously though. Definitely. But at the end of the day, you know, it was another team and I'm sure he influenced that team, but you know, I was just, it, it, I was just very fortunate to be given the opportunity to yeah. go into, I guess was for me probably a real stretch role because I'd never done that before. And they had just acquired this company and there was this organization and there were two drugs in the pipeline in the clinic. Um, one was the PS341, which is now Belcate. Mm -hmm. And the other one was um, LDP, uh, 2002, whatever, which is now Intibio. Both of them are commercial drugs, but they were very early in the pipeline. So I had to come in and first of all, figure out like, you know, do I have the team I need and how do I execute on these programs? And um, that was probably the absolutely most challenging time I ever went through professionally, which is, you know, the, you know, we got to, we got to execute on this, but at the same time, you got to build the team. And, um, right. And I had to create myself as a leader of this group when I'd never done that before. Interestingly, when I came in, several of the people that were the leaders of the leukocyte that had come along, they were looking at me and saying, you know, like, you know, we're not staying here working for, I just remember there was a lot of turmoil when I came on board, but at the end of the day, you know, you get through that and then you bring in the people that you want. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, so it, let's talk yeah. about millennium for a second. Cause yeah. that's a, it's a fascinating history. These are, this is another Cambridge flagship company. It was much newer, of course, than Biogen was, but it had been formed as this genomics company. It was going to mine the genome. We're going to get all these drug targets. We're going to sequence genes, and we're going to really start figuring out how to treat disease way better than we we had in the past. And this was part of the whole run-up to the genomics bubble, really. I think they were formed in like 1993 or something like that. I think that's right, yes. And I, I my memory is that investors started to say, like, that's great. You know, getting Sequencing these genes is great and getting new targets, but what we really need is not some sort of drug discovery platform. What we need is drugs. That's where the real money is. So you need to have drugs. You need to get a pipeline. And that's why Millennium said, okay, well, we, we're going to try to start one. Meanwhile, we're going to buy some stuff and bring it in. And that's how the leukocyte buyout exactly. happened, right? Yeah. But Velcade had been, it had been proscript first. Yes. Then that was, that it was partnered out. And then they couldn't get any money to keep developing. And they had to sort of merge with leukocyte to keep it alive. And then Millennium bought it, right? So it's got this long history, again, of a drug sort of finding its way and ends up being Absolutely. a great drug. Absolutely. I, for sure. That was definitely one of those drugs that people said, are you crazy? You're going to inhibit the proteasome and it's going to be compatible with life. Like there's just like no way. I mean, there was just such naysayers that this could ever, there could ever be a therapeutic index and this could ever be a drug. And the early clinical data were very fortunate that you know, there was a patient with multiple myeloma that was in the dose escalation phase of the trial and went into a complete remission. 
That's and how it was that, discovered. Yes. That was wow. how it was discovered that, that myeloma, it wasn't like we knew that myeloma was the right disease. It's just that yeah. we happened to have a patient and that gave us the clue um, that this actually could be an important drug for patients with myeloma. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, that is absolutely a story of um, perseverance, <laughs> pushing forward on an idea where, you know, you know, it was against all odds that um, in some ways that that drug made it. And it, yep. it, it, it's a remarkable drug. I mean, the impact it's made for patients with myeloma. I remember meeting several patients um, that went on the clinical trial. Um, there was actually one, his name was James Bond. And he was like, he literally was 007. That was his patient number. And he was, he was at the end, like literally like in hospice re or ready to go to hospice. And he would come back to the company. He went into complete remission, like at five years and 10 years with his wife. And he, um, he lived because of that drug. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, it was, it was, uh, a very remarkable, uh, drug, but again, one that was sort of, again, against all odds that it actually worked. In. And so what happens is millennium gets this blockbuster drug out of this, this merger that it had, and then, uh, Takeda buys it. Takeda yeah. buys millennium. Yes. Uh, like $8.8 .8 billion, a big buyout. Millennium's now gone from the landscape and they become this unit of Takeda. And uh, you were still there. You, you survived yeah. that merger, right? Yes. Uh, I stayed for three years after we got acquired by Takeda. Millennium basically became, it was called at that time, Millennium, the Takeda Oncology Company. The idea was to keep Millennium as its like own little unit fully focused on cancer because Takeda had wanted to become an oncology powerhouse. They realized it was very difficult to do that organically. And so we kind of became that group. They put a lot of dollars into us. They had their own molecules in oncology. So the pipeline for oncology grew, the dollars grew. We were much more global. And um, yeah, I stayed there for three years being part of this very large Japanese company. But with at least for a while, the sentiment that we gotta we gotta take all the special things that Millennium was, and Millennium was a very special place. And I give a yeah. lot, you know Mark Levin, who started a lot of credit. It was the culture was very important, the culture of sort of innovation, nothing is impossible. You go after tough problems, put together the best people that you can, and um, and that there was a, a very um, cohesive engaging culture that i think you know that we tried to keep um as part of the the bigger takeda group but you know i think like all of these things it's inevitable at some point in time that that's that impossible things, it, it it really i think it almost is i don't I hope maybe there's a few examples where you could retain that but it's very difficult and it's almost like when you're talking to the people from Lucas side and it's like we're not staying here we're not staying in this we we had this thing going and we're going to get swallowed up by this bigger culture that same thing happened with, with takeda yeah am i reading that correctly yeah yeah exactly yeah. exactly but you know i think uh yes um so i uh i decided that you know that just wasn't for me yeah um i didn't um i just uh and i left so i was there total at millennium including the three years at takeda for 10 years and for the first time in my life, I decided I'm going to leave without knowing what I'm going to do. Hmm. Um, and 
I just decided it was very difficult to think about like, what did I want to do? What did I want to do when I grew up when I was still like 150% immersed in, you know, kind of my job. Like I, when I'm working, I, like I, I go yeah. all in and I, I took, and so 2011, I left and I just spent like a year off just really thinking, <laughs> taking some time off and thinking about what I wanted to do. Yeah. You didn't go back to seeing patients or anything? No. No. Did you have any desire to do that? No. You know, after um, when I was at Biogen, um, after my second child, so I have two boys, they're now 21 and 24, I decided that like having a full-time job and having two kids and also seeing patients was just another thing. Like I just, I had to, I had to prioritize. And so yeah. back then after my second son was born, I stopped seeing patients. I haven't seen patients in, since then. And while there's an aspect that I missed, cause I was actually something very special about like almost like the privilege that you have as a physician and the relationship that you can develop with the patient and that trust and all that I really, that part I really missed. But in the big scheme of what I thought I could do to try to help patients, I thought my time was better spent at kind of focusing on, on drugs and, yeah. of course, on my family on the other side. Yeah. 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 Okay. So what did, what did you learn in this year while you were mm -hmm. pontificating about your future? <laughs> well, uh, for, I, I first it took me about eight weeks to just decompress. Um, and then I thought about like, what did I want to do next? Did I want to just, uh, you know, did I want to be a consultant and sit on board? I was already sitting on some boards at the time. And did I want to do that? Or I always had in the back of my mind, like maybe someday I'd like to run my own thing. Mm -hmm. And I think what I realized both at Biogen and maybe even more so at Millennium is that actually what I really enjoyed doing was building teams, like defining, like putting together kind of a vision and a mission and kind of getting a whole group of people together that are so much better than the sum of their parts. Like, and just th that enjoyment of, of, and then just seeing a team like go forward and do amazing things. I, I found it, while well, it was both challenging. It was so rewarding and that I felt like I was good at doing that as well. And so when I, in this introspection time in this year off, thought, well, you know, maybe I should try to do that, but not just, you know, and I was doing that in my previous jobs, kind of more around a development organization. Right. Like, like again, I might, I might, I could do that again in that same space at another company, but what about if I just thought about it from a whole company standpoint? And there's all these things that would, I would be interested in learning about what it actually takes to build the whole thing. And, uh, I, um, and, and I, I set up a set of criteria so that I thought, well, that's what I wanted. That's what I think I want to do. And again, going back to this, like, I didn't want to look back when I was 80 and say like, I wish I had done that. Like that I'd yeah. regretted that I didn't try something that I wanted to do. And so yeah. I, um, I started to, you know, talk to people about like, you know, what, you know, some opportunities in that. Um, and I started to talk to the bunch of VCs and I kind of had three. I laid, I had three criteria. The first one was I wanted to do something that I thought was like a big idea, not something incremental, like something that was a different way to think about treating human disease. 
Because I thought like, if I'm going to do one more thing, like I want to take some risk and do something that could be big and bold. Uh-huh. I had a more of a platform type feeling to it. The second was I wanted to do something that I felt had a reasonable time frame to start to make an impact on patients. It, even though as a physician, I didn't really mind doing something that was still in discovery or working on something that was early, but I didn't want it to be a 10-year science experiment. Like I, I, uh, my, my well, that's a big, was, yeah, that's a big ask, though, right? I mean, we biotech is known for extremely long timelines. It is. So, I mean, start I, from the startup point of view. It, it is, but I felt like for me, an opportunity to work on something that maybe I could get into the clinic in five years was sort of my horizon. I so see, not that yeah. not all the way to market. I'm just saying, like, kind of. Yeah. To, and then the third uh, criteria, and they were all kind of probably equally important, was like I wanted to work with just a really fun, great group of people. Because I think my whole, like at the end of the day, like you work so hard. Like I wanted to like have fun at work and work with people I really liked. Because like life's too short, and why would you yeah. want to work with people that you didn't feel that way? So that. Yeah. And I ended up talking to lots of different you know, primarily I was talking to the VCs about different opportunities and, you know, I was looking for a long time and I couldn't find anything for a long time that fit that. And I was thinking, boy, I'm just like, is this, should I change my criteria? Like, am I going to be sitting here two years and not like have nothing? And, but a lot of my, my good friends and mentors just said, nope, just, you know, wait out for the thing that you think is, you know, don't be too much in a rush. Like you have yeah. to be patient. And yeah. And that's, and that's, uh, ultimately how I ended up starting Ceros, but I can. But that yeah. sounds like, um, that sounds like putting a puzzle together again. It is. You know, you're talking about when you're doing diagnosis, you would, well, how about this and this and how does it all come together? But this is the same thing. How, how do you build this overall thing that is greater than the sum of its parts? So that must be, I'm assuming that's something that your brain likes working in that way. You like tackling problems in that way. I do. That's, yeah. a, that's what really, it's a good way to think about it. I, 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 I think the more that I have problems like that to think about, the more it's more interesting and I like it more. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Okay. So then how did, how did Ceros finally come into your, into your lap? Yeah. So I had been talking to a couple of the VC firms and um, uh, Arch and Flagship Ventures had already been talking to Rick Young, who's, you know, the sort of the main scientific founder at Ceros, he's actually on our board. He's been on the board since the beginning. And um, and I just, it started with a conversation with Rick. And, you know, Rick at the Rick had been a real pioneer in understanding and developing the tools to understand the non-coding region of the genome, specifically the regulatory region of the genome. Mm -hmm. And um, he developed, you know, this, you know, these ChipSeq and other, you know, it's a lot of the tools and technologies the kind of this intersection between sort of wet bench biology and computational biology, which was so critical for understanding that, you know, very vast region of the genome. And I, it just felt to me like this was like just an early phase of what I thought could be like a tremendous opportunity. Again, a different way to think about treating human disease by regulation of the expression of a gene. Uh -huh. You know, most of, drug discovery and development in oncology had been on kind of the focus on the mutations in the protein coding region. And also at the time, you know, all the GWAS studies were coming out and showing that most of the disease variation, human disease variation are located in these regulatory regions. So there was a lot of interesting science all pointing to 
kind of this area that had been unexploited from a drug discovery and development standpoint. So I thought this has a lot of potential. Um, and I thought, again, just based on where, the, and, and then the other two scientific founders of the company, uh, Nat Gray and uh, uh, Jay Bradner were at the Farber. They were sort of chemists or doc chemists by background. They were already working on small molecules to target these regulatory proteins. So it kind of felt like there was some traction in the ability to target that region of the genome. Yeah. And, uh, and it was like a really fun and a great group of people. And so it kind of met, it started to meet all my criteria. Yeah. And, uh, and that's how the I company mean, got I, started. I, uh, I don't know how to ask this, but like Doug Cole is your husband and he's yeah. a co-founder, right? Of yeah. So he's a flagship. <laughs> Yeah. So the way it worked is like we tried we tried as much as we could to keep a sort of firewall in that regard. Yeah, so yeah. Um, Bob Nelson at Arch was the one that approached me about the job. I see. Yeah. And I, my sense was that part of the discussion at Flagship was, well, Nancy's going to take something. She's, she might go work with another venture firm. So should we like exclude her for anything that we're doing? Yeah. And so the, and, and the, they didn't want to do that. But the bottom line was that that Bob at Arch um, the, those two firms uh, co-founded it, and, and yeah. Bob was the one that basically was sort of hired me. Yeah, um, yeah, and all of that. I mean, it just when you, I mean, I know biotech's chummy in this way, but I was like, did he found a company and say my wife's going to run it? Was it just how it yeah, that how no, it worked? No. But no, it came the other way in. No, yeah. and in fact, you know, in some ways, that was a difficult decision for me to make. Did I really want to go to a company that um, that you know my husband's firm was involved with? But at the end of the day, I went back to like. It's like these are great people, and they they can yeah. pick up really good. I, like why would like why would I want to exclude that as long as I can manage that? And yeah, and then you know it's flagship is well they both are actually, but flagship is just um, I don't know. I'm fascinated by the things that they do and the, and what they're trying to do. And this is before Moderna. Obviously now everything's changed. Did you just see that the fund that you must have seen it that flagship raised? Yeah, yeah. that's incredible. I know. It's, it's awesome. I mean that has to be. I mean, in my opinion, that's like the LPs are like, absolutely, we'll give you more money because look what you've been able to do. I don't, I don't remember a fund being that large for a biotech, like a boutique builder ever in the history of the industry. Yeah, no, it's really, I think you're right. I think it's a really extraordinary, but you know, I think the, 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 uh, in the DNA of, of, uh, firms like flagship. And I think flagship is sort of the, you know, the, in some ways the pioneer in the space is go after big, bold ideas. Yeah. And, you know, and, and over platforms and like really invest in it. Cause these are the things that ultimately, even though you might not know exactly how they're going to end up creating the breakthroughs, they will. And of course, you know, Moderna, like when it was Perfect started, example. It who would have known it was going to basically be um, a savior for, for COVID. But yep. I think, I think, but making investments in some of these areas where you believe that there is going to be, and it's a big idea and you put the capital behind it, I think is, is really important. And I think, um, obviously a, a key to success there. Yeah. You know, I, I had, I had Nubar on the show and, yeah. uh, I just remember, you know, we finished and I was editing it. I was telling, talking to my dad later. I was like, I'm just glad there are people like that out there that have the wherewithal and now the, the money to say, I don't, we don't know, but we think this idea is really good and we're going to put money behind it to see what happens because that's how the breakthroughs come. If you're really conservative with your ideas, you're not going to get the breakthroughs that way. I could not agree more. And I absolutely agree having people like Newbar and Doug and all the others there and, and obviously other firms to think that way. It's so important for, yeah. for us. 
Um, but you said something in a re in a interview that I came across where you're saying that these drugs that you'd worked on, Avonex, Desabri, Velcade, that they were sort of molecules or compounds looking for a patient population and that you wanted to do it differently. Yes. And that's sort of the basis for Ciro's. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I think one of the biggest challenges that we've had as an industry, and in my mind, why our success rates are, you know, despite all the advances and all the great products we have lower than we wish they would be is, you know, really the fundamental understanding of disease biology. And, um, you know, we got lucky with Velcade and with interferon beta, we got lucky because, you know, somebody wanted to do the study that we didn't, we didn't see the link, you know, with MS. So in thinking about serous and understanding kind of like disease biology, that, well, if you understand how genes are regulated kind of at the fundamental level, and then what goes awry in disease, you might be able to really pinpoint exactly kind of the the what's causing the dysfunction in disease and then target that by understanding the biology. And I thought that the regulatory genome really opened that up to the ability to do that in a little bit of an unprecedented way. Because if you, if you just sequence the DNA, you're just getting you know, alterations. So like for monogenic diseases and things like that, you can yeah. pinpoint where, but yeah. for most diseases, it's not a result of a single mutation. It's an alteration in the function and the only way to measure the function is to understand kind of the the regulation of the genes and what what is altered there. And so that's how I saw the link there. And the early work that we did at the company that has led to our most advanced uh, program in the in the clinic, fourteen twenty five, which is now in uh, pivotal studies in hemolignancy, is we took almost in an unbiased manner. We took AML tumor cells. We profiled the it, regulatory regions of the genome and just said, like, what are we learning about the the difference in the subsets or the function of those cells compared to normal cells? And just from that work, we identified this sort of novel patient population where there was a super enhancer controlling the expression of the RARA gene. And that tumors that had that super enhancer were highly sensitive to 1425. So that to me is a different way to think about developing a drug. It's sort of starting with the disease and then figuring out what's wrong and then targeting what's wrong with that. And I think the, to me, the more that we can do that, I think the better. And that's what was really attracted me to the, the Cirrus platform. So is that how you build your pipeline? You like, we're going to focus on this disease and we're going to do all kinds of research on the pathways or the biology behind this disease for however long that it takes until we find something that leads us towards a compound? We've 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 done that in the case of the work that I mentioned in AML and our lead yeah. drug is 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 for that, and then we have um, in let's say in the case of um, sickle cell disease uh, where we're working on that in partnership with Global Blood Therapeutics, there we actually know exactly what we want to do. We know that we want to upregulate the expression of fetal globin, and we now have dissected out the regulation of that gene by, by understanding that enhancer complex that controls the expression. Mm -hmm. And I've identified things that we want to target that can control the expression of a gene that we know we want to regulate. So that's just another example. So we've applied our platform in sort of different ways. I think the fundamental underpinnings of the platform is our deep understanding of 
how genes are regulated um, at sort of the molecular level um, and then ways to target those regulatory proteins based on um, kind of our uh, transcriptional chemistry uh, platform as well. Yeah. So if you if we look back like at Millennium, for instance, where um, this is, you know, they were founded before the genome was sequenced and what we thought we knew then versus now. It's just astounding the things that we've figured out in 20 years about not only the genome, but how the genes work and what you can do with them and how you can affect them, their expression or not. Do you feel like in 20 years from now, what Cirrus is doing will seem, I'm not going to say outdated, but the, the knowledge will have leapt so far that you'll be doing things that you can't even quite imagine now? I hope so. I just think we're at, I mean, I think back, you know, started the company in 2012, 2013, the first financing went in. So uh, not very long ago. And already just our, the, to me, the whole field is exploding. I mean, the number of companies that have started up all in this space back then, yeah. we were the only ones, all different sort of approaches and technologies uh, to think about how we can target that region of the genome, including, you know, with, you know, CRISPR methods or a whole right. variety of different, you know, uh, ways to target that region. I think we're just at the beginning. I think it's, um, and I hope we look back and sort of say, you know, we were just at the beginning yeah. back then and we were, you know, one of the first and, um, but we're, uh, we're going to continue to evolve as, as the whole field evolves. You know, I remember talking uh, to uh, Roger Perlmutter back when I was starting Ceros and I was just going to talk to him and advice about, I think it was about chief scientific officers when I was, um, and he said to me, you know, the coolest and best science going on is all in this regulation field. He said, but if you go into drug companies today, nobody understands anything about gene regulation because nobody has focused on that. So it's almost like you had this disconnect between this incredible science and this inflection point in the science, but so few people that had been a, had, had a track record of translating that. Yeah. I'm hoping that when we look back 10 years from now, that will be a very different picture and that we're going to have a lot of people that have been working on this for a while. And we're going to actually have that deep experience on that translation of that amazing sort of scientific understanding into making drugs. And I think we're well along our way, but I, I think that's what we're going to, what's going to happen. It's just going to be a much more of a critical mass in, in this space on uh, yeah. actually making therapeutics. Yeah. Um, as we talked about your desire to keep learning throughout, throughout your career, and when you go from something like, well, I guess it would, I mean, the move to Millennium was a bigger role, right? I mean, as chief medical officer, yeah. was probably more than you're in budget, right? So the, you, you learned something there. But when you move to a CEO position, you know, now, now you have to deal with the shareholders and investing and all the rest of that. So, so can you tell me what you had to learn in this position to be successful at it? Yeah, uh, well, I think, and I did this, I remember when I first went to Biogen and when I first went to Millennium, as I just, I... I, I felt like I was a sponge in the sense that I was like, okay, this is an area that I just want to talk to the best people I can for them to tell me how I should think about it. So let's, you know, so I think one of the most important things as a CEO that you need to do is you need to raise money because you can have the greatest ideas possible. Yeah. You could even have great people, but if you don't have the capital, you don't have anything. So early on at the company, I just like, went on my like learning curve just to talk to people that had been very successful 
at, um, you know, uh, engaging investors and raising money and like learning, um, you know, what's the best practices, what should I do? And one of the things I learned back then, which I would tell anybody today is like, even when you don't need to raise money, you should be out in developing relationships with people and they should get to know you and get to know where you are and tell them where you're going and then come back and tell them where, now where you are. And just that, that importance of establishing relationships early and that uh, is so important on your quest ultimately to, to build um, you know, a great company and raise the capital that you need. So I just, I just tried to learn from as many people as I could about these areas that I didn't know as much about. And um, yeah, I think that's been been very helpful to me. Raise money early, you know, get these contacts early, but then kind of just stay in touch. Let Absolutely. them know what's going on. Here's where we are in our development. You know, we said we're going to do this. We've almost achieved it or we have achieved it. But that does that take away from your ability to handle the science? Because you're always thinking about, you know, is do we have enough money in the coffers? Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that you have to do and this was you always i always felt like i had to do it when you're involved in drug development which is you you have to have a lot of conviction in where you're going but at the same time you have to have a real sense of realism about you know the probability and the capital it's going to take um we know that most programs that go into the that are being developed either ideas of discovery or development don't make it but you can't go in believing that you've got to go in believing that it's going to work but you also have right. to be you have to always have eyes wide open about that and i think i think a say the same way a little bit about that capital piece which is um first of all i bringing in a great team and early on i brought in eric olson as our cso and he's an outstanding cso so i was i built a really great team early on so a lot of the thinking, sort of scientific thinking and stuff, I felt good about. Uh, and then I had to both push that along at the same time as just, you know, not knowing exactly how much money we were going to raise and when we were going to raise money, but just having the conviction that we, we were going to figure it out. Like you, you have to have the ultimate conviction to keep driving forward so that you don't become paralyzed. And I think you, so you have to live a little bit in these two different worlds, but um, I think that's that ability to do that has been very important because it's really you want to drive the science forward and you want to give everything the best shot you could. At the same time, you also have to think about when should I stop doing things? And there were things during the early phases of the company, some programs that we you know had brought in or were working on that at some point we just said, you know, we're going to stop working on. So making the decisions on what to work on to what point and also just as importantly, what we're not going to do yeah. is so important when we think about, you know, it's all about sort of capital allocation and how do you best deploy your capital. And then it sounds like the other thing is you have to hire great people. I mean, if you don't have time for the science, then you better get Eric Olson in the door. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I think one of the things I actually love about Ceros at the start and even Ceros today, you know, we're, we have a, you know, a lot more people than we did early is even compared to, you know, millennium you know, I have much more access to the science in talking to scientists. Like every day I can come in and talk to a scientist. Today we had a seminar on sickle cell disease and like I'm, I'm part of all those scientific discussions. So I actually, it's, I think that that's so important. And actually I love having the opportunity to both lead the company, set the vision, raise the capital, but also be sitting down with the scientists and hearing about their project. Yeah. 
that's just one one more question. Yeah. Um, you know, as you said, if you feel like your learning curve isn't as steep anymore, or that you aren't being challenged, then you move on. That does not sound like that has happened to you at Ciro's. No, like every step along the way. I mean, so first there was start the company. So the company was, you know, a blank sheet of paper. We had to come up like, okay, how are we going to turn understanding of enhancers and gene regulation into a business? Into a company, right? Right. right? So that was like, what's the business strategy and plan and hiring the first few people and setting labs up and all of that, raising the additional capital. Then you, the next phase is, you know, you, you become a public company. Now you're in the clinic. Like you, there's a whole, that's like chapter two. And now as a company, we're just now moving to chapter three. We have a program in pivotal development, plan to have another a second program in pivotal development next year. We're thinking towards commercialization. That's another exciting chapter. I feel like right. the company's almost, it's like at another beginning point. It's like another whole exciting time that we were realizing the vision, but there's a whole set of new things that we need to do. And that makes it really fun and interesting. So I kind of feel like there's been so many of these great opportunities um, to kind of grow and expand. And, um, and it's been each, each stage has had its, it's, is, uh, is really fun and exciting for me. That was great. Thank you. It's a lot of fun. Thanks, Brady. I had so much fun. Hold on. Hold well. on one second. Okay, there it is, your first Rounders podcast with Nancy Simonian. Thank you, Nancy, for taking the time and uh, all your thoughtful answers to my questions. If you would like to find us on Twitter, our handle is at Nature Biotech. You can reach us there. A quick thank you to the Midwest Quiet for use of your music in this podcast. If you search Nature Biotechnology and First Rounders, you will find this podcast wherever you find your podcast. You can subscribe to us there. I hope you're doing well. I will talk to you soon, and goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.